Hey everyone, welcome back to the Theater Apologetics. So glad you joined us today. Today I'm joined by Joe Schmidt of Majesty of Reason. We're going to talk about the aloneness argument against classical theism. So, Joe, how's it going? Uh, it's going wonderful. I'm I'm really glad to be back on your channel. I really enjoyed our last conversation. That was really fun. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, it's fun, and it's fun keeping up with you and your work and jabbing at Arsenal occasionally and just living life. So this should be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're not the greatest team ever, but, you know, I'm Arsenal till I die, so. <laughs> well, we'll see how it goes. Um, but for today, we're going to talk about, like, the aloneness argument against classical theism and, like, what all that entails. So um, to begin, can you just, like, talk a little bit about, like, who you are and what you do and then what got you interested in, like, things like this? Yeah, so... Um... Uh, like you said, I'm Joe. Uh, I do both popular and scholarly level work in philosophy. So on the scholarly level, I um, write and publish papers and uh, even books. Uh, let's see. No. Yeah, right there. Okay, there's my book, <laughs> Majesty of Reason, A Short Guide to Critical Thinking and Philosophy. You can find that on Amazon. Um, and also working with some different academic publishers uh, on a different book manuscript on existential inertia and classical theistic proofs. So that's fun stuff. And um, yeah, just write and reviewing and uh, published in papers. And then on the popular side, I have a YouTube channel, Majesty of Reason. Um, I have fun discussions on there with philosophers of all different stripes on all different kinds of topics, mostly philosophy of religion, but also like metaphysics, philosophy of time. I also go into ethics some. Um, I branch out in a lot of different places. Um, mm -hmm. And then I also have a blog on the popular level. So that's by the same name, majestyofreason.wordpress.com. And then what got me interested in classical theism? Well, I grew up a, a kind of traditional Christian uh, with the kind of traditional classical theistic concept of God. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I've just always been interested in whether or not God exists firstly. But secondly, if God exists, what is God like? I think that's a really interesting question. Um, and, you know, you can, inv you can investigate that question without even believing in God as well. Mm -hmm. So um, it's something that can unite people across a whole host of different uh, perspectives. So really interested in that. And then I, I guess one final thing before I turn it back to you uh, is that, you know, this this argument that we're exploring here, um, it's not meant to be knocked down or anything like that, right? Um, for most arguments uh, in philosophy, there are going to be ways that you can get out of certain premises or certain things. Uh, it might involve biting some bullets, might involve biting some pretty strong bullets, but um, I don't want to give people the impression that this is some insuperable knockdown, decisive refutation that is irrefutable. Like, we can we can put that kind of polemics to the side and let's just explore reality together um, and let's have the requisite intellectual humility uh, to recognize that um, uh, our arguments might not be infallible. So, yeah. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, and I appreciate that. And it's so interesting to think about like these models of God, at least for me, because like growing up, like it was always like culturally Christian, but like I never knew that they're like different models of God. I thought it was like, oh, well, God's probably triune and like that's it. But like there's like all this like stuff with like classical theism and neoclassical theism and all this fun stuff. Um, so to start off, we're going to talk about like classical theism and the doctrine of divine simplicity. So um, to start off, what is the doctrine of divine simplicity? Yeah, so... Uh, the Doctrine of Divine Simplicity, or like DDS, uh, you can call it that. Um, I'll probably switch between those throughout this discussion. But it's one of the core doctrines uh, or theses or claims of classical theism. Uh, and so classical theism is a model of God. What's a model of God? Well, it's basically a way of conceiving or understanding uh, God, God's nature, his character, his relation to the world. Uh, so it's a, a set of unique claims about God's nature and the God-world relation. Uh, other doctrines within classical theism that demarcate it from um, other views uh, are immutability, so God 
is he has no potential. He's purely actual. Um, he cannot change in any way, shape, or form. He's impassable. So what that means is that he exists in a, a state of undisturbable blessedness and bliss and happiness, and he cannot be causally affected. Uh, and God's also timeless in addition to being simple. So timeless just means he's outside of time. There's no succession in his life. He doesn't like do one thing and then another. He doesn't think one thing and then another. He doesn't like know one thing and then another and so on. So um, those are the four kind of you know, core tenets of classical theism in addition to uh, divine simplicity. I should say that uh, classical theism has uh, a lot of other theses in common with other models of God. Um, God's perfect, God's radically independent, God's asse, God's necessarily existent, um, God's a creator and sustainer of all else, um, uh, omniscient, omnipotent, blah, blah, blah. So they're, they're, it's most, mm -hmm. they, they mostly agree with one another uh, on the core, or at least a lot of the core doctrines. But these four distinctive ones kind of demarcate um, uh, classical theism. Now, I do want to talk about um, like parsing out this divine simplicity a little bit further, um, but it basically says that God has no parts, okay? No physical, no metaphysical, no logical parts at all in God. And that raises the question, right? What is a part? Uh, well, within the classical theistic tradition at large, um, a part of something, let's just call that thing S, so a part of S, is some positive ontological item intrinsic to but distinct from S, okay? So a positive ontological item, what is that? Well, that's just anything with like being or reality or existence. It's like anything of which it is true that there is that thing, right? Anything of which it is true that there exists that thing. So that's what a positive mm -hmm. ontological item is. It might be a property, it might be an accident, it might be a, a substance, it might be anything, anything of which it is true that there is that thing, okay? Um, and then I also made use of this notion of intrinsicality, right? So what is, um, what is this intrinsic thing? Well, intrinsic properties and predicates, they characterize things as they are in themselves, right? They, as they are in and of themselves, and it contrasts with extrinsic properties and predications, which characterize things not as they are in themselves, in and of themselves, but rather how they relate or fail to relate to things outside of them, as it were. So um, kind of intuitive way is that, uh, that you can cast this doctrine of divine simplicity is that all that is in God is God. Right, so there's no positive ontological item intrinsic to God that's distinct from him, which just means that everything in God is God. Okay, so that's, yeah, I, it's a long, it's a long-winded way of saying it, but that's, that's the doctrine. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really good way of fleshing it out. Um, so a couple of the important things in your argument are these ideas of like divine creative freedom and then divine omniscience. Do you want to kind of like hash those out? And, um, and yeah. Yeah, so divine creative freedom basically just says that listen, God is free to create or refrain from creating anything. Uh, in other words, for any positive ontology, and this is under, this is the classical theistic understanding of it, uh, for any positive ontological item that's distinct from God, right, or any collection of such items, uh, God is free to create that item or collection of items, and he's also free to refrain from creating uh, that item or that collection of items. Uh, and so, basically, uh, God's free to create or refrain from creating. That's that's all it says, and uh, this applies to anything distinct from Him, anything numerically distinct from Him. Uh, so, secondly, divine omniscience. You asked about that. So, um, that basically just means that necessarily, if some proposition is true, God knows that it's true. Okay, so if it's true that dogs exist, God knows that dogs exist. Uh, if it's false that that um, that I exist, well, then God knows that it's false that I exist, and so on. So, um, yeah, basically. There are a few complications there, you know, uh, you can talk about whether or not future contingents have a truth value and all that stuff, but we don't need to get into that. Um, omniscience just says God knows everything uh, and he knows all truths uh, in, in, in any possible world in which he exists. 
Mm, that's super helpful. So, like, one of the big ideas, kind of looking at this argument, is the idea that um, maybe God could choose to live in, say, a world um, like an alone world, or He could choose to live in a world like this world. Um, given like the idea of like classical theism, can you can you like hash that out and like the idea of like creative freedom and its importance with this argument? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, classical theists have pretty unanimously held throughout history that God is indeed free to create and refrain from creating anything. You can find this in pretty much every major classical theistic thinker, mm-hmm. pretty much. Um, but in that case, though, right, God is free to create absolutely nothing, right? He is free to choose to exist alone, all by himself, not accompanied by anything else, okay? so And hence, what falls from that, uh, because God's free to refrain from creating anything distinct from God, it follows that God could have existed alone. That is to say, it's possible that God exists and nothing apart from God exists. That's all that we're saying. There's some possibility. There's some scenario where that could happen. Uh, And so this basically is uh, something that we cite a lot of different scholars uh, in our paper on, and it's pretty unanimously held um, in the, you know, the models of God literature and so on, that this is a pretty core commitment of of classical theism. Now, I should note that we do make use of possible world semantics. So we talk about possible worlds. God could exist in a world in which God is not accompanied by creatures. We call that an alone world. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a world in which God and God alone exists, nothing else. Um, And so we are talking about possible worlds and so on. I should note, though, that that's just a heuristic device, right? It's, It's, we're not using, we're not like, quantifying over them and saying that these things really exist out there as these weird like concrete universes or whatever like we're not we're not saying that it's just a heuristic device it's what we mean by that is just a possible world is just a total or complete or global way that reality could be okay so mm-hmm. we're not saying that these like oh they exist out there as some spooky entities or god's like located in them and he's less he's uh he's subordinate to them no we're not mm-hmm. saying that uh, we're just using this as a heuristic device to make it easier to talk about possibilities. Um, and so the second thing that I want to say on this possible world semantics thing is that um, everything we say in the paper can actually be cast in terms that make no reference whatsoever to possible worlds, um, but instead only use like possibility and necessity operators. So that's just saying possibly such and such is the case or necessarily such and such is the case. That doesn't make use of possible worlds at all. We're just saying the way that reality must be or the way that reality could be. Um, and so we can do that. And, and in fact, our step-by-step argument that we give in there, uh, it, you only use such operators. And so it has nothing to do with the whole framework of possible worlds. So people who have objections to possible world semantics or any other things like that, that's tangential to the argument. It's completely tangential. Uh, okay, that, that, that that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, no, that, that's great. I appreciate that. And I think this next part is like where the argument might get a little more heavy. And it's this idea of like intrinsic divine knowledge. Um, so like buckle up, it's going to get a lot of fun here. Can you talk about like what is intrinsic divine knowledge? Um, maybe you want to talk about like other ideas of divine knowledge. Like what, what role is this going to play in your argument? Yeah, so basically, let, let's, <laughs> let's start simple. Okay, so God knows a lot of things, right? God knows a lot mm-hmm. of things. He knows that one plus one equals two. Uh, now, because one plus one equals two, because that's a necessary truth, right? God necessarily has that knowledge. Okay, so in every possible world you look at, God knows that one plus one equals two. He necessarily has that knowledge. But other things aren't like one plus one equals two, right? Other things are such that God only contingently knows them. Okay, for instance, it's only contingently true that I exist, right? I could have failed to exist if my parents never met, say. Uh, and so God only contingently has the knowledge that I exist, right? If we focus on another world, another possible world in which I don't exist, well, then obviously God doesn't know in that world 
that mm -hmm. I exist. I don't even exist in that world for him to know that, right? Um, it's not even true. And so, uh, yeah, knowledge presupposes truth. Everyone knows this. Knowledge is something like justified true belief, but, um, you know, obviously you get complications there with Gettier cases, but everyone agrees that knowledge requires truth. You can't know something that's false. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I know that one plus one equals five. It's like, what are you talking about? That just doesn't mm -hmm. make any sense. So since knowledge presupposes truth, and since some things are contingently true, and since God knows everything in every world, um, God's gonna have contingent knowledge in, in, in each world that we focus on. Uh, for instance, God's gonna know for any creature X, whether or not he created X in that world. And that's, that's going to be some contingent knowledge that God only contingently has, because in some worlds the creature exists, in other worlds, a creature doesn't exist. Mm. Okay, so uh, God's knowledge that I exist, that's what we're talking about, that uh, is, is contingent. Mm. But a problem arises here, right? So um, if this knowledge is intrinsic to God, so if this knowledge is like within God, right? Well, then there's something that's both contingent and intrinsic to God. But in that case, right, it's false that everything in God is identical to God. Uh, because God can't be identical to like a contingent being. He can't be identical to something that's contingent. Uh, and so classical theists like W. Matthews Grant and Alexander Proust and others, they make God's contingent knowledge extrinsic to God. So in other words, God's contingent knowledge, at least in part, consists in contingent realities themselves, uh, which are outside of God. And so the knowledge, the contingent knowledge doesn't correspond to anything contingent in God, but rather the contingency is located outside of God on these views, because if they located it inside of God, uh, then that would just be a violation of divine simplicity. There would be something in God that is not identical to God because it's contingent. Um, so that's, the, I mean, that's kind of the role of intrinsic divine knowledge uh, in the argument and especially intrinsic contingent knowledge. Now, I basically, what we do with that is that we try to show that this extrinsic model won't work at, uh, at least for uh, a world in which God exists alone. Uh, and if that model doesn't work, well, then there's something both contingent and intrinsic to God because it's not going to be able to be extrinsic to God. Um, and so our goal in the paper is basically just to argue that at least in the alone world, there's going to be some sort of contingently obtaining reality and it can't be outside of God because God doesn't create anything in the alone world. Um, and so it must be in God, uh, but that's not compatible with divine simplicity. So that's that's a basic role. I know where I'm going to flesh out the argument a little bit further later on, but um, uh, and yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll, that's enough by way of now. Yeah. No. Do you think you can just like flesh out a little bit more? Like, why is this like God containing contingent knowledge um, or obtaining contingent knowledge? Why is this bad for classical theism? Just in case maybe someone's not familiar with like what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. So I was hinting at it there at the end, but I'm glad you like explicitly asked about it, so I can kind of lay out the 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 scheme as it were. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to put the, I'm not going to like form, formalize it and lay it out here. I've learned from experience uh, that that's not fruitful. Um, it, it gets, it gets really technical. It's got a bunch of different necessity and possibility operators. It's like 11 premises long. <laughs> I've learned yeah. from experience that it, it is not a good idea um, to, th there are too many working parts to, to lay it out formally. So we're mm -hmm. just going to take an informal route. Um, uh, that's how I'm going to, how I'm going to articulate it. So remember that uh, according to classical theism, right? Uh, anything distinct from God, if it is to exist, requires God to create it. Uh, and God is free to create or refrain from creating, right? Uh, and so from that, it follows, as we saw earlier, that, that God could exist alone without anything distinct from God. But now let's consider that possible world or that possible state in which God does in fact exist alone. So in such a state, right, God's omniscient. God's essentially omniscient, so obviously in this state, he's omniscient. So God knows in this state that one plus one equals two, that God freely chose not to create, yada, yada, yada. He knows all these sorts of things. He knows that there are, there are no dogs and so on. 
Now, some of these truths or facts are such that God necessarily knows them, as we saw earlier. God necessarily knows that 1 plus 1 equals 2. God knows necessarily knows the Pythagorean theorem, and so on. But some of them are such that God only contingently knows them, right? God only contingently knows in such a state that there are no dogs, uh, that he freely chose not to create, uh, and so on. Uh, and so some of God's knowledge in such a state is contingent. So the argument goes. But now that's where the, the problem starts to arise, right? In such a state, in this possible world, the contingent knowledge is either in God, in God, or outside of God. But mm -hmm. it's outside of God in such a state since there's nothing outside of God in such a state, right? There, there's literally zilch outside of God in such a state. Um, so it can't be outside of God. It's a state wherein God is alone. There's nothing outside God. And so the contingent knowledge is in God. But that means that there's something that is in God that is identical to God in this world, and yet it's contingent, right? So we, we found that there's something that's one, contingent, and two, in God. And that's just not compatible with divine simplicity, so we argue. Uh, remember, all that is in God is identical to God. Uh, and God can't be identical to something contingent, right? God's not a contingent mm -hmm. being. Uh, and so since divine simplicity entails that the knowledge couldn't be in God in such a state, and yet we just concluded that, well, it actually is in God in such a state, uh, it follows by the argument, if the argument succeeds, that divine simplicity is false. Now, like I said, there are lots of different moving parts. We go through a number of different objections in our paper. Uh, I've I've conversed with other people and, and they have certain other objections. Now, I tend to think that some of those actually end up doing more harm than good and end up biting certain bullets and perhaps even end up being incompatible with uh, classical theism on other fronts. But uh, that's that's how the argument goes in, in a nutshell, so. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great way of kind of looking forward. Um, what are some of the I'm curious, like, what are some of the bullets you think some people might have to bite, like, if they're classical theists? With, before we get into, like, specific like, objections and such, like, what, what bullets are possible that people might have to bite if they kind of, like, run with this argument? Yeah, well, um, one of them could be that, uh, well, let's see, which one do I want to take first? Um, one of them is that someone might try to say that God's contingent knowledge in this world consists in... Uh, they're like God's knowledge that there are no dogs. Let's focus on that. Mm -hmm. Perhaps God just has an intrinsic state, which is necessary. And perhaps we just predicate of this state, something that is contingently true of that state, but it's the contingency is explained by the contingent absence of dogs say. So that they might try to try to say that. So perhaps um, the contingency of God's knowledge in this alone world just consists in the absence of there being creatures, perhaps in conjunction with God's intrinsic necessary state, or perhaps we can get some kind of truth maker version where absences are serving as truth makers, um, and so on and so on. Now, what's difficult about that is that, well, firstly, we're getting into difficulties about, like, there are no such things as absences, so it's hard to see how absences could serve as an explanation. Like, usually we mm -hmm. think if, some, if X is... If we're citing something to explain another thing, we normally don't think that we can cite something that doesn't exist. Um, like if I try to explain why, um, like the dog barked, and I try to cite fairies, like fa fa fairies don't exist. So it's like it's weird that we would be able to cite fairies to explain that. But um, mm -hmm. moreover, you can get worries about whether or not this has a truth maker and so on. Uh, so you get into deep weeds there, uh, and you get into some pretty implausible views, arguably. But secondly, uh, and this is this is another thing that I. I think is a bullet to bite is like not all of God's knowledge in this state is knowledge of absences. Like there are no dogs. Like, okay, fine. That's an absence. And maybe we could grant classical theists that, okay, uh, it, maybe we can grant them a story on which um, 
God's contingent knowledge consists in, or perhaps is explained by the absence of dogs. But that's not the case for all of God's contingent knowledge in the alone world. Why? Why? Well, because God knows that he freely chose not to create. That's mm-hmm. knowledge of God's free choice. That's not knowledge of some absence. That's that's knowledge of God's providential, fully rational, informed, free choice. His choice. We're not talking about, oh, there, there aren't dogs or something. Now, what they might say then is like, okay, well, this choice itself, right, uh, that's only a contingent choice to refrain from creating because, um, because in virtue of the absence of creatures, right? That's that's why we can predicate of this of this single act that it is a free choice to refrain from creating because there aren't any creatures that accompany God. But then that seems to get the order of explanation backward, right? I mean, surely there are no creatures. Surely there's an absence of creatures precisely because the choice itself is a choice to refrain from creating. It's not a choice to refrain from creating because there are no creatures. So it seems to get the order of explanation wrong. So it's like, even if I granted them that they can get out of this thing by appealing to absences of dogs, say, or, or what have you, um, it seems as though they, they run into difficulties with focusing on not knowledge, God's knowledge of non-negative existentials and his knowledge of things that aren't absences. Because then we can focus on God's knowledge of his contingent choice to refrain from creating. Uh, and then they're going to say, oh, well, that choice, there, there's no contingent reality to that choice. Rather, um, uh, that's an extrinsic contingent predication of that choice. But then it seems that they're getting, you know, the, the order of explanation wrong. Um, it, it, sh- it should be a choice to refrain from creating, not in virtue of there being no creatures. It's the other way around. So, you know, obviously we can get into a lot more details there. I think there are other bullets that might potentially arise. Um, but that, that's one example. I just wanted to give you an example. And I didn't explain it perfectly, but um, yeah. No, I, this is great. I appreciate it. Um, one thing that might be helpful here is I had this question for you of how would you explain the aloneness argument to a five-year-old? Um, so maybe we can up that to like a 10-year-old if need be. But like, how would you like basically uh, explain the aloneness argument? Because it's definitely, it can be tricky to try to like get your mind around it. I'm still trying to figure it all out. So yeah. 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 And I don't blame anyone at all for that because like I said, there are so many different working parts and yeah, it's difficult stuff. And um and yeah, like I said, I think we all need to have requisite epistemic humility here and not, you know, claim triumphal triumphal victory and, and whatnot, um, and be open to being wrong and whatnot. So I would say to a five-year-old or maybe a ten-year-old, um, if classical theism is true, uh, well then God could have refrained from creating anything else, right? because uh, God's free. He he's free to create. So God could have refrained from creating anything apart from himself. So if classical theism is true, God could have existed all by himself, right? If he if he's free to refrain from creating anything apart from himself, well, then God could have existed all by himself. So if God could have existed all by himself, well, now let, let's consider that state where God, uh, you know, that possible state where God exists all by himself. In that state, right, the only thing in existence is God, uh, who mm-hmm. is utterly necessary, right? Yeah. So there's no contingency whatsoever. There's nothing that could that, uh, that obtains but that could fail to obtain or that exists but that could fail to exist so there's no contingency whatsoever of any kind in this state that we're considering mm-hmm. so if classical theism is true then in such a lonely state in a, a, a state in which god is alone well then nothing is contingent but plausibly something is contingent in that state right like god's knowledge that he's alone or the contents of god's knowledge so, okay so like maybe god's in the act of knowledge is necessary but the contents are not necessary well then focus on the contents maybe the contents are, are contingent or whatever or maybe there is a contingent property of truth had by certain contents of knowledge or whatever so there seems to be something contingent here um, but under classical theism there couldn't be anything contingent there because god and only god is existing in that world and so um by modus tollens oh i probably shouldn't say that because they're a 10 year old but 
Um, so, so that that's the basic argument um, against against classical theism for a five or ten year old. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's super helpful. Um, so what I'd be helping would we get to go into now is just like some objections to like the alumnus argument. Um, there's a few yeah. different things here that we had drawn up, and one is um, can't things just have like extrinsic f features in in a lone world? Yeah, so this is the first objection that we consider, um, and I, I should alert people to um, a few things. So firstly, you guys can check out the paper itself. Uh, that's the first thing that you, you can consider and check out for this. Um, uh, it's on my like fill people profile. If you just search fillpapers.org, um, and then you can just type in Joseph C. Schmid, and then you'll be able to find my fill papers profile, or fill people profile, and you can click on my name and you can get a free version there. Um, so that's one thing that you should check out. Uh, I, I'm saying this as a preliminary because I, I this objection comes up uh, elsewhere. So we, we address that in the paper. Secondly, people can check out the video um, made by the YouTube channel called Intellectual Conservatism, where they uh, uh, criticize this argument. And you know, I'm all for uh, criticism and whatnot. I think that's it's beautiful. I think we're probing these you know these deep questions together. Mm -hmm. So check out that video. And then thirdly, I uh, check out my blog post response to that video. Uh, uh, at my blog, majestyofreason.wordpress.com. Uh, and yeah, so I respond, it's part one out of part two. I haven't made the part two yet. I'm extremely busy. Uh, you know, maybe I'll make a part two. Hopefully at some point in the future, I don't know when, <laughs> but hopefully I'll be able to make a part two, uh, but I'm just it, drowning in work with other sorts of things that I have to do. Um, but yeah, those, those three things and this, this objection comes up there. Uh, and so there's a lot to say about this objection. There, there's too much to say for, uh, for present purposes, but like, what I'll say is this. Yes, things can have extrinsic features or at least satisfy, uh, contingently satisfy certain predicates uh, in worlds in which those things exist alone. So consider, for instance, the property or the predicate. Let's just focus on properties because predicates that make things complicated. You can construe this a kind of realist way or an anti-realist way. A realist would say um, things can have a property of, for instance, existing alone. Um, mm -hmm. Anti-realists or nominalists like William Lane Craig would say, no, like hiss, hiss, hiss at that. Um, the, the, no, rather they just satisfy predicates. There's no, there's no property here. So uh, mm -hmm. we can talk about the, the predicate ex exists alone or the property of existing alone. Let's just focus on the property, uh, but I wanna be neutral on those. So yeah, things can have extrinsic properties in worlds in which they exist alone. So for instance, um, the property of existing alone, that is an extrinsic property. It doesn't characterize something in virtue the way it is in and of itself. It mm -hmm. characterizes it as it is like as the as other things are, as reality as a whole is, namely that this thing isn't accompanied by other things. That doesn't have anything to do with how I am intrinsically, how I am in and of myself, within myself. Rather, uh, that characterizes me in virtue of uh, there not being other things, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So that's a kind of extrinsic predication. And in particular, um, well, now we can get into a distinction. So and the distinction that we draw in response to this is that um, we don't think this avoids the aloneness argument for a number of reasons. Uh, well. One reason, which this is the only one that I'll give right here, um, is that we can just, just ugh, we can distinguish between what we in the paper call positive extrinsic properties and negative extrinsic properties. Mm -hmm. So a negative extrinsic property is just, you know, it's something like it, it reports of its subject that the subject fails to be related to something else, or that, you know, it's some kind of absence or failure or lack on the part of the subject. So consider that property of existing alone, right? Well, that's that's a that doesn't like that 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 reports of me that I fail to be related to other things. It reports of me a lack that that I lack relations to other things that might exist that might accompany me. 
Mm. And so these negative extrinsic properties characterize things as they fail to relate to other things. But by contrast, positive extrinsic properties don't do that. Rather, there are some kind of positive reality in and of themselves. Perhaps they characterize things in virtue of the way that they relate to other things or, or whatever, but they're, they're non-negative um, uh, extrinsic properties. So negative extrinsic properties report of their subjects some kind of failure or lack, uh, um, yeah? Whereas positive extrinsic properties are just all those properties that aren't negative extrinsic properties. But with that in mind, um, we, we argue that it seems really implausible to say that God's knowledge is some kind of failure or absence or lack. Um, I mean, to be sure, God may have knowledge that there is an absence or a lack or a failure. So he may have, might have knowledge that there are no creatures or what have you. But that's crucially different from saying that the knowledge itself uh, is an absence or a lack or a failure. Um, and so God's contingent knowledge, we argue, is not going to be able to be a negative extrinsic property or negative extrinsic predication, since that doesn't seem to be reporting a lack or an absence or a failure on God's part. Um, rather, it seems to report some kind of positive reality, um, namely some like bit of knowledge, say. Uh, and in that case, it seems we're still left with some kind of contingent positive reality in the alone world. Um, and since there are no contingent positive realities outside of God in the alone world, it seems as though it's going to have to be a, a contingent positive reality in God. Um, uh, now, I guess, suppose that one disagrees with us there and thinks that, okay, God's knowledge of various absences or lacks, um, for example, of there being no creatures, suppose that they think that, okay, that no, that's still not some positive reality that is contingent, um, or else if it is some positive reality, it counts as contingent knowledge of an absence in virtue of the absence itself, and hence only extrinsically contingent. It's only extrinsically contingent, not intrinsically. Even still, um, I think we can focus, like I said earlier, so this goes back to one of the things that I was, uh, when you asked about the, the bullets to bite. Um, mm -hmm. Even still, I think we can focus on God's knowledge, not of lacks or absences, but rather of God's own choice to refrain from creating, right? Um, that choice surely is not some absence or lack. Um, like, it's not absence, it's not knowledge of the absence of creatures or the absence of some other sort of thing. It's rather knowledge of a choice God made. Um, now, the classical theist might respond by saying, well, that choice itself counts as a choice to refrain from creating in virtue of the absence of creatures. And so ultimately, the only contingency here is extrinsic, right? Uh, the predication of God's act, that it is a choice to refrain from creating. Uh, well, that's true, not in virtue of anything intrinsic to God or that act, but rather it's a, it, that's true in of the act contingently in virtue of the absence of creatures. Um, but then, you know, that brings up the problem that I raised earlier. It seems to just get the order of explanation wrong, right? I mean... Um, it's not, it just seems, I don't know, God's choice doesn't count as a choice to refrain from creating in virtue mm -hmm. of an absence of creatures. Rather, there's an absence of creatures in virtue of God's choice being a choice to refrain from creating, mm -hmm. right? It's not, it's not the absence of creatures that determines that God's uh, choice is a choice to refrain from creating. Rather, it's the other way around, right? It's the fact that God's choice is a choice to refrain from creating, uh, which determines the absence of creatures. And so I don't think that this particular response will work uh, to, to the original reply that I made. So that's a long-winded way of one, <laughs> that's a long-winded way of saying that I think that this objection, while valuable, doesn't quite work, at least by my lights and from where I stand right now. Um, and I will say that there are other modes of, of um, criticism available uh, uh, with respect to this particular uh, objection. Actually, this is what I wanted to bring up, some new arguments that I, I've been thinking about. Um, and mm -hmm. in particular, so suppose that they want to say, okay, no, okay, God's knowledge that there are no dogs 
that's a contingent extrinsic predication or whatever in the alone world um, because you know God fails to be related to dogs and perhaps in, it's in virtue of that failure that God has this knowledge or, or what have you or that um, we can contingently predicate of this knowledge uh, that it is knowledge that there are no dogs. Suppose that they say that, uh, then I wanna say, well, hold on a second, let's focus on the state prior to creation. So traditionally, classical theists hold to creation ex nihilo. That's one thing among others that demarcates them from panentheism is this doctrine of creation ex nihilo. And as uh, Ryan Mullins, John of Damascus, uh, also Maimonides, Sam Liebens, all other, all these sorts of thinkers point out, um, arguably the doctrine of creation ex nihilo has as a core commitment that there is this state, state of affairs, there's this state wherein God exists alone, causally prior, we're not saying it's temporally prior, I mean, obviously God is timeless, so it's causally prior to the beginning of the universe, uh, mm -hmm. in which God alone exists, uh, and there are no creatures. And of course, then there's a state in which God exists with creatures. Um, but you know, you can find all sorts of different thinkers like Augustine saying like, um, right, uh, it is repugnant that creatures could be co-eternal with God. Uh, creatures were not always, but God was always. And so there's a state where God is without creatures. Um, uh, and so that that seems to be just a, a core commitment of uh, creation ex nihilo. And I have boatloads of citations for that if, if people want, want. but um, so, let's focus on that causally prior state, right? Let's focus on this state wherein God alone exists causally prior to creating things. Uh, and let, let's focus on this world's initially, causally initial state where God is alone prior to creation. In that state, there is an absence of dogs, right? There's an absence of dogs. But yet in that state, um, God still knows that, for instance, there will be dogs in a causally posterior state of reality. And so like in virtue of, how does that knowledge characterize him? Because that's contingent knowledge. Um, mm -hmm. But like, there aren't anything, there isn't anything extrinsic to God in this uh, in this causally prior state because he's alone. Uh, and secondly, I mean, you can't cite the absence, right? I mean, the, the absence, that's, that's supposed to be undergirding God's knowledge that there are no dogs simpliciter, but we're talking about God's knowledge that there actually will be dogs in the future, say. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, it seems as though they can't they can't cite this absence in this causally prior state, um, uh, and so that seems to be a, a predicament for um, the classical theist. Now there are ways to formalize this, and I, I'm doing this off the top of my head, people. And I, I have um, a document that I'm, I'm working on where I kind of flesh this out, make it a little bit more rigorous. I use technical concepts like intrinsicality and extrinsicality, and formalize what this prior state consists in, and so on. Um, but uh, it, it does point to, I think, interesting. Another interesting response to this objection that um, absences probably won't be able to to save you because um, there's also an absence of uh, also, there's an absence of dogs, say, in the alone world. But there's also an absence of dogs in this causally prior state in which God exists alone, and yet somehow in one of them, God knows that there will be dogs at a causally posterior state, and then in another one, He doesn't know that, uh, and so. You can't just cite the absence as that in virtue of which uh, the the contingent knowledge applies. Um, uh, and again, some people might say, "Oh, well, in one of the states, God contingently intends to bring about creatures." But it's like you have to re recognize that on classical theism, right? All of God's intentions are, are utterly necessary, and so we have to ask about this this contingent. We're just predicating another contingent thing of God in virtue of what is this contingent intention uh, uh, true in this state? And there's nothing extrinsic to God in this causally prior state. Um, and, and so we can just run the same arguments there. But anyway, we're getting ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> uh, I hope that suffices by way of response.
Yeah, I think that's great. Um, we do have about 10 minutes left in terms of um, objections here, and then we'll get a little bit of audience Q&A for the end. Um, but my next objection here, I'm just going to skip ahead a minute, is just um, couldn't God just necessarily know, like, non-existent things, even though he doesn't actualize that possible world? Like, per se, like, you know, like, God knows in, like, this world, um, maybe there's dogs. In another world, there's maybe aliens running around. Um, but he just doesn't actualize that world. But he knows that world's there. Um, so then there's not really an issue here with regards to, like, the aloneness argument. Um, so what are your thoughts there, Joe? Yeah, so... Um, I didn't, uh, write too much of my notes by way of response to this. Um, and so I, I agree that, yeah, God does know, uh, the contents of every possible world in each. So in any individual world in that world, God knows all the contents of the other worlds. Yes. He knows like that if those worlds were actual, then such and such creatures would obtain. So, but that's, that's necessary knowledge. That's knowledge about the modal space, about what is possible and what's possible is necessarily possible per the S5 axiom of modal logic. So, so that's necessary knowledge though. Right. But the problem with this response, though, is that it doesn't avoid the aloneness argument. Right. In the alone world, God might necessarily know some truths about non-existent things. Right. Um, he'll know that all dogs are dogs and that in another possible world where there are dogs, there are such and such dogs in that world. So um, you might know that kind of knowledge. But and this is crucial. This is crucial to recognize some truths about these non-existent things are contingent. Right. For instance, it's only contingently the case in the alone world that there are no dogs. Uh, it's only contingently the case that humans don't exist, uh, and, and so on. And so God only contingently knows these truths in the alone world. Uh, so I don't quite think that um, that this response will just be able to get avoid the aloneness argument, just because, like, yeah, we can grant that God knows uh, all the contents of all the possible worlds, but that's just necessary knowledge. There's still the further fact, the further contingent fact of which particular world happens to obtain. And that's going to involve a whole host of contingent propositions and contingent facts. God's going to have to know those and because knowledge presupposes truth. God's only going to contingently know those um, because it's only contingently the case that there are no dogs. And so he's only going to contingently know that there are no dogs. It's, it's not like God in this world knows that there are no dogs. There are dogs. Yeah. God does not know in this world that there are no dogs because um, mm -hmm. that's not even true. Uh, and so, but yet in another, in another world, God does know that there are no dogs, namely in a world in which he doesn't create them. So I don't think this response um, really address, uh, really sufficiently addresses uh, the aloneness argument. So that, that's, that's what I'd say. Mm, yeah, that's super interesting. Um, the last objection I have for you here is like, um, what if the classical theist just like accepts a modal collapse? Like, obviously, it's not super common, but maybe some people will and say, well, okay, there's a modal collapse. And then, yeah, this just solves the issue. Um, so what do you think there, Joe? Yeah, so one thing that I want to say is, well, so Roland, <laughs> Ryan added this line to the paper. I, I didn't add this line to the paper. Um, but, mm. but Ryan said, um, uh, in response to one response or one objection that we came across, which is like a, a more restricted modal collapse, but basically similar to what, what you're saying here, uh, he said, yeah, I mean, you might be able to take that route, but only at the cost of denying classical theism. And in general, and he said, in general, we don't advise defending classical theism by way of denying classical theism. <laughs> so I thought that was funny. And I'm like, okay, I'll leave it in there. You can have your cake, Ryan. Um, so yeah, he put that in there. Uh, I thought it was funny, but yeah, traditionally that that that's my main response. Traditionally, classical theists, no, that that's not okay. The modal collapse, like it's part and parcel of classical theism that God is free to create or refrain from creating. I mean, I can go on and on about all the authors that I want to cite, but like, you know, it's just a fact that this is pretty much the core of classical theism for like millennia, basically. But um, people could deny it. So let's let's just. Maybe someone's just going to dig their heels and be like, screw the tradition. I don't care. 
modal collapse. We're just going to take it, you know, bada bing, bada boom. Um, now, that ar probably arguably would solve a lot of different problems, uh, potentially for um, classical theism. But I think there are a lot of problems that that in and of itself engenders, right? So I'm just going to briefly, I wrote I wrote these down because I didn't want to forget them. I, I have eight problems that might accrue to someone who wants to accept <laughs> modal collapse. So the first one, well, I already said that. Uh, it's traditionally a core commitment that God is free. But, you know, secondly, is perfect being theism, right? So we might think plausibly and intuitively uh, that a being which is free to create or not create is better, right? It's better than one which is necessitated or compelled to create. The former, mm -hmm. like a being that's free to create or not create seems to come with a kind of control and artistic creativity and a kind of gift givingness that's a lost in a view on which God is necessitated or compelled to create. Uh, and so it seems, it, well, it might be a theoretical cost, seems intuitively to be a theoretical cost uh, for one's view of God uh, to, to adopt this kind of um, modal collapse. Uh, this, the third thing that I want to say, so the first one was uh, that um, it's a traditional commitment of classical theism. Second thing is perfect being theism. The third thing is divine providence, so God's control, right? If God's necessitated or compelled to create and create exactly this world, I mean, it seems God's losing his providential control over creation, right? I mean, like... Mm -hmm like over whether it obtains and if it does obtain its precise character, right? Like God's, he doesn't have control over the contents and character of creation. If it's absolutely necessary that he causally bring about this specific creation. Like when we say that I have control over, for instance, um, what my painting will be and what it will be like, like we mean that I can decide out of a range of options uh, what to put in my painting uh, and indeed, whether I want to paint it and how to paint it and when to paint it and so on. But if we take all of those away, I have no control over what I paint, whether I paint it, how I paint it, when I paint it. <laughs> I don't have control over my painting. Um, yeah, just you tell that to a painter and they're going to be like, what the heck? You took away my, my control. So uh, it just seems to wreck divine providence. Uh, fourth is natural theology. So, uh, I mean, if we say creation exists of necessity, I mean, you're collapsing a lot of contingency arguments because like one of the fundamental pieces of data upon which those arguments rest is that, well, hey, things are contingent. They could have failed to exist. And so that's what calls out for some deeper explanation, yada, yada, yada. But uh, you just completely destroy some of the best arguments for God's existence if you take that away, arguably. Um, so that's the fourth thing. The fifth thing is God's grace. So grace seems by definition to be a gift that need not have been given, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure even grace comes from the word gratuitous. Like, and gratuitous just means like needless. It need not be given, right? It's gratuitous. Um, mm -hmm. And so, like, we thank God in part for his giving us graces that we don't deserve and needn't have received. And so it strongly seems upon reflection that our concept of grace and gratuitous, um, that grace is by definition a gift that need not have been given. And so if you accept modal collapse, there's no such thing as God's grace. And that just destroys a lot of what we want. <laughs> so that, that mm -hmm. that's yeah. If you say there, there's no such thing as God's grace. Um, so that's the fifth thing. The sixth thing is human freedom. So many people, so... Um, I'm agnostic on, on the debate, but many people find compatibilism about freedom implausible. Um, but uh, uh, modal collapse would have to adopt compatibilism. Uh, well, if uh, unless they want to say that we're totally unfree, but that doesn't work with hell and heaven and all those other sorts of things. But, you know, we could set that aside. Um, so many find compatibilism about freedom really implausible, right? Like many think that if everything we do is done of metaphysical necessity, such that we literally couldn't have done otherwise ever at all in no circumstances, then we simply aren't free. Uh, but mm. obviously are free and so modal collapse is false so so you know you can run this argument as follows you could say premise one um if some if someone ought to do something well then they can do that thing right ought implies can in other words if one cannot do something well then surely it's not the case that you like ought to do it right like if i can't fly what the hell would you mean when you say oh joe you should be flying it's like what i can't fly uh, mm -hmm. so, 
yeah, that's the proper response. I can't fly. What are you talking about? So arguably ought implies can. Uh, but for some people, they ought not to have done something that they in fact did. Or mm -hmm. they ought to have done something that they didn't in fact do. So for those who disagree, just think about Hitler. Hitler did not refrain from killing millions, but he should have. He really should mm -hmm. have. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, so from those two premises that ought implies can and that Hitler did something that he ought not have, it follows that Hitler could have done otherwise, but that's incompatible with modal collapse. Uh, okay, now obviously compatibilists aren't gonna like that argument, um, and there are responses to that in the literature and so on, and responses, those responses, blah, 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 blah. Okay, so we're just gonna move on. People, you know, I know you might be peeing your pants, but uh, that's okay, we're just gonna move on. Um, the seventh response that I wanna make is just a Morian shift, right? It just seems obvious that there is some contingency, right? So. Throughout this discussion, I presume that I blinked like nobody count, but but if if I I'm presumed that I blinked, what if have we been going for like forty five minutes? Forty five minutes, it's probably like what, like ten times? How many times does someone blink in a minute? Yeah, let, let's just let's just assume that in a minute someone blinks ten times. Okay, mm -hmm. so now we've got forty five minutes going. That's four hundred fifty times I blinked. I think I could have blinked four hundred fifty one times <laughs> or four hundred mm -hmm. four hundred forty nine times. That seems obvious. Or like. I'm moving my hand, my finger. Can I like move it one more time? Like surely yeah. I could do that, right? Like that just seems obvious. So any view which entails that I can't do that uh, or that, um, you know, I couldn't have blinked 459 times or whatever, 449, I think that's just obviously wrong. And that's a more in shift. Okay, so that's the seventh reason. And then this is the final thing I'll say. The eighth reason is uh, from divine dependence. So this is from James Dolezal. He says that, well, if God must create, well then God's being the thing he is seems to require the existence of something apart from God, which seems in turn to make God in some sense dependent on creation to be fully himself, to be fully actual. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, according to Dolezal, a necessary creation is just incompatible with what he calls divine absoluteness, right? Like if God must create, well then, I don't know, in some sense, in order to be God, there has to be something else. Like, like God would somehow need something apart from God to be God because mm -hmm. it's essential to him that he creates. So it's like, he doesn't seem to have this kind of requisite absoluteness that we want of God and that traditionally is asserted of God. So those are eight different reasons um, why we shouldn't think, or at least under classical theism, why modal collapse would be disastrous. And most people in the modal collapse debate accept that. There are some who don't, um, like Catherine Rogers, for instance, she just accepts modal collapse. She's a classical theist, um, uh, but, but yeah. Yeah, that's super helpful. And I appreciate you kind of walking through all those objections and like the eight step plan to de destroying the modal collapse objection. Um, that's great. And we'll go to a little bit of Q&A here. Um, Jono says, um, if Joe accepts the proof malpass view of possibility, I guess that's like the S5 like modality. Um, could this be used to object to the idea that in the lone world is possible? Yeah, so um, I do I definitely lean towards that view of modality. So for people who don't know, this is a kind of Aristotelian view of modality. Uh, broadly Aristotelian. It's kind of like a branching view where things are possible in virtue of either being actual or being the uh, being grounded in the actual causal powers of things. So things having the causal power to initiate a causal chain leading up to the thing in question. Mm. Um, concrete things, that is. Um, and so it's this kind of branching view of modality where every possible world, if it is to be possible, has to share a history, uh, a causal history with the actual world. Now, it... I don't think that that could be used. Oh, and I should say that Proust defends this in one of his 2011 books. That's actually what convinced me that this is probably true. Um, uh, Malpass defends it. Oppie defends it. Uh, Josh Rasmussen has sympathies with it. Um, he also has sympathies with a, a platonic view of modality. But, um, uh, you know, 
I think I already said, I don't know if I already said Rob Coons, but like Rob Coons, a lot of people, a lot of respected philosophers. Um, so I'm not alone. Uh, but um, my point here is just that I don't think that this can be used as an objection to the idea that an alone world is possible because under classical theism, right, that initial causal segment is God himself. And it's grounded in the causal powers of God himself that God could have chosen not to create. And so one of the possible outworkings of God's own causal power is indeed a world in which God chooses to refrain from creating. And that would be an alone world. So that's a possible outworking of causal powers. And so that is indeed uh, one branch that reality could have gone down. So mm. uh, I don't think, th this wouldn't be able to be used to object to the idea of an alone world being being impossible, at least if you have classical theism, because mm. classical theism has the requisite causal power to bring that about. Mm. Um, Susan says, um, what about the Trinity? Does this mess up the ejections to God in the aloneness world? This is interesting because it's like, I, I'm trying to think about how you could like phrase this objection. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, Joe? Maybe like one Trinity member is like, no, nah, let's not create this world. And other guys like, yeah, man, it's, it's going to be pretty fun. But then it's like total Christian heresy, I'm sure. So I don't, I don't know what you're thinking. I think Christians have to affirm that they have one will. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. That's at least in yeah. social Trinitarianism. I haven't studied like all the different like views of the Trinity yeah. though. Yeah. Well, we should both probably <laughs> say not as much stuff because we're going to say something. <laughs> False. But um, anyway, I'm pretty sure Christians have to say that they have one will and one power. I think that's in one of the creeds. But anyway, anyway, we could set that aside. Some people reject like the those things. But um, anyway, mm -hmm. uh, the question. That's an excellent question. Now, what I want to say is that that's still an alone world. Right? I mean, like each of the members of the Trinity is God, right? You can't say that they're <laughs> that they're not God. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So like, there's still only one. There's still only God here, right? God's the only thing in the alone world. Um, so. Uh, but but it's a good question. And even supposing that there's more than, let's just say that there's more than one thing in the alone world. Let's just say that. It's a weird way of speaking, but there's more than one positive ontological item. Okay, that's a fine way of speaking. There's more than one positive ontological item. Still, I think the aloneness argument could go through because everything about the Trinitarian God of classical theism is still necessary, right? Um, mm -hmm. That each of the persons is necessary and so on. Everything intrinsic to them is numerically identical to them and so on. So, um, yeah, you still have everything necessary. And so you still have this question of how you're going to square contingent knowledge with that. And then you can, you know, then we can run the lowness argument that we can get into the objections from extrinsicality and, you know, yeah. Mm, yeah, that's good. Um, Docker says, is Zach a, a neoclassical theist? Nah, man, I'm a classical theist because I know that um, Joe is just trying to do these mental gymnastics to make it sound <laughs> like God has parts and, you know, and there's no difference between God and that hoodie in front of me. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, I saw your blog response to Proust. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. I like kind of like neoclassical theism, but I also like kind of like some kinds of panentheism, but I don't like other yeah. kinds. And I don't know. It's kind of weird. Um, so I love I, don't know. I think it's super cool because, like, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not saying that this argument succeeds, but it's interesting. Felipe Leon has an argument from material causality that, um, and material is a it's a rough word. He basically just means whenever there's stuff, it comes from some pre-existing stuff. It, it's made out mm -hmm. of that. Um, that naturally, and he has an argument for that, and he basically says that as an argument against creation ex nihilo. Um, but the panentheist can accept that argument, right? The panentheist can say, absolutely, yeah. And you know, there's inductive evidence for that principle, there's Bayesian evidence and so on, but we don't need to get into that. My point is just that I think, um, yeah, panentheism is pretty, uh, pretty respectable and so on. Um, but yeah, uh, and anyway. 
Yeah, no, that, he is an int- I enjoy listening to it's, it's 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 interesting to think about his argument because it's a lot of fun and he makes good points. That's why I'm kind of attracted to the idea that, like we're kind of like almost like in God's mind in a sense, like kind of like idealism. Um, Because like there's some panentheists, like it's really weird because like some are like there is no pre-existing stuff. It seems like like some of the, maybe the older ones, but you have like processism where it's like, well, there is like this like matter or something that exists. So I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Well, I think a lot of mm-hmm. them say that God creates out of his own being, as it were. Or some say mm-hmm. that out of his own mental images and so on. And so you get the yeah. kind of idea of you. And there are some actually really interesting, sophisticated defenses uh, in the contemporary literature of, of idealism. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, yeah, Josh Rasmussen himself has certain sympathies with it. So it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, I guess uh, I know he asked you about this, but I mean, me, I mean, I think. Um, I don't think anyone should say that like classical theism is oh irrational or you know utterly mm-hmm. decided or like debunked or like or even <laughs> that or classical theism is debunked or utterly decides it or that it's irrational. Mm-hmm. Like oh, I think we can recognize room for rational and reasonable disagreement, and um, there are considerations on on uh, both sides. Uh, I have two videos on my channel on arguments for classical theism. Uh, I go through give some critical assessments of that and so on. If people want to look into those, I also have. Um, uh, I'm also going to be making a two or three part. No, it's going to be three part series on uh, just a survey of arguments against classical theism. And you know, I'm I'm obviously not going to be defending all of them. I'm actually going to be pretty critical of some of them and saying that hey, this doesn't work, and the classical theist has good good responses in you know to this. So, um, mm-hmm. but other ones, of course, I'm going to be like defending and so on. But um, my point is just that yeah, I think we should all have pretty more nuanced views about these things rather than saying like oh, yours just makes God this. Uh, uh, you know, oh, he's some Zeus character, or uh, contrary-wise, <laughs> oh, you you guys just have this ineffable, um, you know, uh, incoherent, like, doesn't make any sense, you know, like, we could drop the yeah. polemics, we can try to, you know, steal man and others' views, and so on, so. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that, and I think it's, we're progressing towards more, like, steel manning versus just, like, creating, like, debunked videos and saying everyone else is rational. Um, Jonas says, like, what's the best advice, um, or what's Joe's advice for people wanting to start publishing papers as an undergrad? Yeah. Okay. So number one advice is find a mentor. Um, so that, that's what I would say. Uh, if you're at a university, uh, try to find one of your professors, um, you know, professors in philosophy or whatever you want to publish in, find the professor, say, Hey, I'm interested in starting to publishing. I have some interesting new ideas and I think that they're novel in literature, but can you kind of help me work through this process? Uh, I, that's what I would really say. Uh, for, um, I mean, that's the biggest thing because the the professors, they are in the field. They know which journals are going to be most appropriate for you. They're going to be able to look at your paper that you want, that you're thinking of sending off for, for publication. They're going to be able to give some feedback. Um, they're going to be able to tell you whether or not it's publishable. Uh, they're going to be able to just coach you through it. And uh, once you get maybe, I don't know, once once you understand the the workings of how to do that, uh, with one time, then you're kind of you'll be able to you know take off the the training wheels and you'll be able to d- to do it yourself. Uh, so that's my that's my number one advice. Try to find a mentor, whether it's a, a PhD student uh, who has already published, preferably in their later years of the PhD, um, uh, or a professor. That's better. Uh, and and yeah, the mentor. There are also things online about publishing in philosophy. Um, so uh, I can send this person. Uh, if they want to email me, I can send them some some links to certain things on the internet that uh, give some good advice. Um, uh, yeah. Mm, that's great. Well, Joe, I think that's about all the time we have. So is there anything kind of like last thoughts, things you get to say before we um, wrap things up? Wait, actually, wait, wait, before the conclusion. Um, last time this year, we did, a, we did a conversation around this time last year. I think it was in like August. Um, and I asked you Arsenal predictions and you said Arsenal is going to make top four. 
Um, I'm pretty sure they missed the UEFA Conference League, which is a new thing. Were so, um, oh, yeah. Well, they were they were so close. So the, I remember the last day of the season. Um, I was like watching the Tottenham game, Tottenham versus Leicester. So a lot yeah. of your, a lot of your listeners won't know this, but like this is like everyone is on the edge of their seats because Leicester might make the top. You know, might, Leicester might make mm-hmm. the top four. Depends on the results. Tottenham might crazy. not. Tottenham might not even make, um, you know, any European league. And, and like, I was at the edge of my seat. And Tottenham, of course, in the last, like, 10 minutes or so, scores, like, two goals or something. Um, <laughs> and that meant that Leicester, I think, went out of the top four, which is sad. But it also meant that uh, Tottenham finished above Arsenal. If Tottenham had lost, which they were on the track to doing for most of the game, Arsenal would have made European soccer. So they, they would have gotten, like, sixth or seventh, I, for, I forget. But they, they, mm-hmm. they would have been pretty high up. And they would have finished above Tottenham. Anyway, I was so sad. But if you want my prediction <laughs> next season. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> oh, man. So I'm going to go with either sixth or seventh. Um, I'm going to have faith. I'm going to say sixth. <laughs> Europa League, at least. That should be Europa League. Yeah, yeah. Man, what a season for Arsenal. That would be interesting. Hopefully they sign some Americans. They may be off some reason to root for them. Um, so yeah, but for oh, now, I support Chelsea. With, um, Chelsea. So like, I don't, I don't support Chelsea, but I have mm-hmm. to be honest. When I see Christian Pulisic, I'm like rooting for him. <laughs> I hope he's, he's so much fun. I, I, I'm so rooting for him every time I see it. So like, I, I hope Chelsea lose. Like they, Chelsea loses four three, but Christian Pulisic gets the hat trick. So like, <laughs> that's what I would say. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, Pulisic being from like I'm from State College. Hershey, Hershey's like an hour away. It's like that's our guy. That's so cool. So, yeah. Um, well, Joe, thank you so much for joining me. Do you have any kind of like last thoughts, non soccer related, um, before we wrap things up here with the alumnus argument and such? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think anyone should use this argument as like a weapon. Um, and you know, there also I think you know there might be certain ways that classical theists. Can, can respond. It's just, I think that they're going to involve biting certain bullets. Um, I don't think any argument is going to be able to prove some kind of uh, conclusion uh, with absolute certainty or what have you. Um, I mean, some arguments, well, like, you know, Russell's paradox, like you can obviously show that there can't be a, a, a set of um, all non-self-membered sets and so on. But in the context of philosophy and respectable views on either side, um, you're probably not going to find such knockdown arguments. Um, it's just, what you have to do is look at the responses and see if they involve biting certain bullets. And what I would argue is that there are lots of bullets. I would argue that um, the classical theist would have to bite in order to successfully get out of the uh, aloneness argument. So that, those are my thoughts right now. And I'm developing some new, like I, like I said, in, in the middle of our stream, I'm developing some new aloneness arguments as well. Um, so people can stay posted for that. Um, but yeah, thank you for mm-hmm. having me on. Yeah, it's been so much fun, Joe. Glad you joined us. And I encourage everyone, you can check out the Majesty of Reason YouTube channel. If you're listening on YouTube, there's like added. So you can just add it and go there. Um, and if you're listening via podcast, you can do something similar. Um, but one last time, Joe, thank you so much. And Eduardo, Randolph, Jono, everyone else, thank you for tuning in. Have a good one and bye, everyone.